Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the World Trade Organization's appellate body. It doesn't sound as exciting as tariffs, but it's still really, really important. Think of the appellate body as the system that's supposed to stop the tariffs. We'll be joined by Trade Talks' favorite, Jennifer Hillman. As everybody knows, Jennifer's had a number of jobs out there in the trade policy world. But today, we're going to have her put on her hat as a former member of the WTO's appellate body. She was there for four years between 2007 and 2011. Jennifer, hello. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. So the WTO basically sets out the rules that all 164 members are supposed to stick to. WTO disputes happen when one member government thinks that another member government has broken those rules. Suppose the U.S. puts tariffs on steel and aluminium, and the EU thinks this breaks the WTO's rules. What happens is the EU files a formal complaint, then there is a 60-day consultation period when the parties are supposed to try to resolve the issue among themselves. And then when they can't do that, the EU asks to form an official panel of three experts who are supposed to decide whether there has been this rule-breaking. Now, this is not the appellate body. These people are brought in on an ad hoc basis. They're former diplomats, lawyers, sometimes they've even been economists. And this is really just the first round of the arbitration. The panel is considered in in sort of U.S. terms the trier of both fact and law. So they're going to collect all of the facts and the evidence about whether or not there has been. There is there a government measure and does that government measure violate some of the WTO rules? The second round of arbitration is the important one. Supposing the EU loses that first case, or or suppose even that the US loses the case, then the losing party can appeal. And at that stage, the dispute goes to the appellate body. And finding these appellate body judges is definitely not an ad hoc process. There's supposed to be a roster of seven judges to pick from, and these are appointed by all of the WTO's member governments by consensus. So everyone has to agree on who they actually are. When these judges are appointed, judges have four-year fixed terms that can be renewed once. And here's the problem. The U.S. is blocking the appointment of new judges. You need a minimum of three judges to rule on, on any particular case. And at the moment, there are only three left. One Chinese, one American, and one Indian. And if one of them has a conflict of interest and they have to recuse themselves from a case, even those three won't be enough. Suppose then that we get down to the point in which we only have two appellate body members that can serve, what's going to happen? That is the real crisis that is affecting the appellate body because what that effectively means is that no appeal decision can be completed. And if an appeal cannot be completed, in theory under the rules, no one can act on the underlying panel report. The dispute simply stays with an appeal pending. So the country that won the case, in theory, cannot claim the value of its winnings. It cannot insist that the other party comply. It cannot ask for retaliation. It cannot ask for compensation because the appeal is pending. You're supposed to wait until the appeal has been completed before you seek a compliance with the ruling that you've won. So if that system is broken, then I suppose you might worry that countries start taking matters into their own hands. And that is exactly what everyone expects, is that no one will wait 
for an appeals decision if they know there is not an appellate body division that can hear the appeal. You're going to be in an endless queue waiting for a result. No country is likely to wait like that. So they start then to take a unilateral action to go ahead and retaliate or other unilateral actions against the country with whom they had the dispute. And the concern is then that country says, oh, that action wasn't lawful because the appeal had not been completed. Therefore, they counter-retaliate. And then the country that won the case further retaliates, and you end up with the possibility of a mini-trade war in each and every dispute that comes before the WTO dispute settlement system. Hopefully listeners now understand why this is an important issue. This gets to the heart of the question of whether you have a binding dispute settlement system at all. And, And the question we're going to try to answer is that of why the Trump administration is doing this. Why is the Trump administration so unhappy with the appellate body? We should point out that a number of the current issues being raised by the Trump administration aren't necessarily new. They were brought forward by the Obama administration and even the Bush administration before that. In fact, as I was going back and doing homework to prepare for this episode, I was rereading congressional testimony of the 1990s and early 2000s, and I saw opining by current WTO Deputy Director General Alan Wolf, as well as USTR Robert Lighthizer, about a lot of these issues. So while the tactic of blocking these judges might be new, the discontent just is not. People shouldn't think that if there were a sudden change in the leadership of the U.S. Trade Representative's office, that all these issues would suddenly go away. In part, the problem is that the U.S. doesn't like some of the decisions that the appellate body has made. Maybe even more difficult is that, in some sense, the U.S. sees dispute settlement and even international law differently than a number of the other really big players in the system. Here's Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, speaking at an event at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in September of 2017. There are a number of issues which, on which there's pretty broad agreement that the WTO dispute settlement understanding is deficient. I mean, there are transparency issues. There are issues with the staff. There are a whole, a whole variety of issues that we have a problem with. And I think there's a general agreement that there are problems. But I think even beyond that, the United States sees numerous uh, examples where the dispute settlement process over the years has really diminished what we bargained for or, or, or imposed obligations that we uh, do not believe we, we agreed to. There have been a, a lot of cases in the, dis- the dumping and countervailing duty, the trade remedies laws, where, in my opinion, the decisions are really indefensible. And, uh, and even a lot of people who have a much more free trade orientation who read these um, questions, and we've had tax laws that have been struck down. We've had uh, other provisions where, where, where the WTO was taken um, really, I think, took the position that they were going to strike down something they thought shouldn't happen rather than looking at these the GATT agreement as a contract. Mm-hmm. So what we've tended to see is that Americans look at the WTO or any of these trade agreements and we say, okay, this is a contract and these are my rights. Others, Europeans, but others also tend to think they're sort of evolving kinds of governance and there, there's a very different idea between these two things. Um, and, uh, and I think sorting that out is what we have to do. Jennifer, could you elaborate? 
Yes, the United States has always taken a bit more of a view that the WTO should be viewed as a contract and that therefore the only role for the appellate body or the panels to play is to apply the rules, the contract terms, if you will, to a single dispute and that therefore they resolve whether this one issue does or does not violate the terms of the contract. Whereas the European Union considers the WTO's dispute settlement process to be somewhat more akin to a court, in which the role of the court is to interpret the underlying law, the text um, of the WTO agreement, and for its rulings to therefore carry some level of precedential value, that if it interpreted this term to mean one thing in this case, it should have the same meaning in the next case. And so there is a bit of a distinction between how the United States views the role of the dispute settlement process, that it's to decide just this one dispute, just between these two parties, um, and just in this one context, as opposed to a more evolving notion of what is the law of the WTO. It's also, to me, a bit of a distinction between countries like the United States that are considered common law countries, where the notion is there is a role in applying the law to a certain set of facts, and that that's what the job is, versus civil law countries, which is most of the European Union countries, where the notion is all of the law is embodied in the text of the agreement, and therefore what is critical is the interpretation of that text, and that interpretation sort of lives on in lots of other cases and crosses onto lots of other disputes. Sometimes it's been explained to me that the U.S. is effectively accusing the appellate body judges of being too European. They see the deal, the WTO, as a contract, and enforcement of that contract should just involve comparing the facts with what it says in the contract. If it's not in the contract, then it's not in the contract. And in practice, they see the appellate body as becoming too big for its boots, over-interpreting the rules to make them into something that the U.S. never signed up to. That is absolutely at the heart of the United States' concerns and complaints. And in some ways, it was this notion that when the United States agreed to join the WTO, there was a bit of a grand bargain, that the United States would stop engaging in unilateral behavior in exchange for a binding dispute settlement mechanism that would not and could not add to the rights or detract from the obligations of the United States. And now the United States is saying that's exactly what the appellate body has done. The appellate body has broken that bargain. All bets are off. And therefore, now the United States is entitled to engage in the unilateral behavior that it has because of what it perceives to be these over-expansive interpretations of WTO law. There's a related concern about the accountability of the appellate body. The U.S. is upset that the body isn't accountable enough to its members, or specifically, I guess, accountable to the United States. And maybe if they were more accountable, they wouldn't be doing all of this over-interpretation stuff that the Americans don't like. And this relates to the concern of some in the administration that, well, maybe it hasn't been formalized, but some of the judges are actually biased against the United States. Not the American judges, mind you, but all the other ones. And yet, I will say, at the appellate body, there was a very, very strong notion that when you become a member of the appellate body, you check your nationality at the door. You are not there on behalf of the United States or on behalf of China or on behalf of anyone. You really are there to try to do the best job that you can of rendering a decision that is consistent with the WTO rules and that responds to the arguments that the parties are making in the case. 
Some listeners may also know that the Obama administration chose not to reappoint Jennifer after she served her four-year term. Jennifer, what's your understanding of why that happened? Again, I don't know that I know and will never know. I was told very clearly that, you know, again, that the United States would block any slate of nominees if my name was on it. So it made it very clear that I would not be subject to reappointment. Certainly what was said publicly at the time, you know, in reports in the news were that the United States wanted someone that would more forcefully defend U.S. interests and wanted someone that would be more willing to dissent, particularly in trade remedy cases. I served a four-year term. I had that wonderful opportunity and honor, and it was certainly appropriate if the United States wished to appoint someone else for them to do so. In your case, the Americans create this now obvious problem that by not reappointing you, it looks like they're only willing to appoint people who are going to more forcefully defend U.S. interests. And that's just wrong. No member of the appellate body is there to stick up for their home country. But by doing what they did in your case, the Americans will also have heightened the suspicion of other countries that the next American appointment is actually not going to be sufficiently independent of the United States. Now, at the time this happened back in 2011, the Obama administration received sharp criticism for doing this from a lot of different quarters, even in the United States, including by my Peterson Institute colleague, Gary Huffpower. Gary published an important piece explaining these issues that we'll tweet out. There's often a bigger trade-off between having judges who can make the right decisions independently, which most people would want, and having accountability of these judges to the actual membership of the WTO, these governments. Sometimes on this, it can seem like the U.S. and the EU are talking past each other a bit when it comes to proposed fixes. So, for example, the EU proposed that perhaps rather than having judges serve two terms with the option not to reappoint, there should be one longer term. Here was the American reaction to this, coming from the U.S. ambassador to the WTO, Dennis Shea, at an event at the CSIS in October. The EU wants to make the appellate body less accountable, in our view, by giving them more, by giving the appellate body secretariat more resources, by lengthening their term to six to eight years, uh, by making them full-time jobs. And this goes in the precise opposite direction of what the United States is calling for. The United States is calling for more accountability because the appellate body has strayed from the original understandings of 1995 in a variety of ways. These concerns about the appellate body's accountability and it overstepping its authority underlie a bunch of other complaints that the Americans have about the way that the appellate body's procedures actually work. The first one is if an appellate body member starts working on a case and then their term expires, the current practice is for them to actually finish up that case. But for the Americans, the potential concern there is you might have, say, a European on the appellate body whose term is ended and who is being replaced with a new European, but the first one ends up working on that case for an extra period of time, and you can end up with a situation where there's essentially two Europeans that are on the appellate body at the same time. Another complaint is about what happens if a dispute takes longer than 90 days to, to rule on. The U.S. complains that the appellate body is not consulting members when it breaks that 90-day deadline for coming up with its judgments. And it says that, well, those judgments don't count. The most significant from a legal perspective is this issue of what happens if the appellate body doesn't finish its report in 90 days. Because the United States is right that technically under the rules, if the appellate body report is not issued in 90 days, then it's not, if you will, an official report of the appellate body and therefore is not subject to what is referred to as the reverse consensus rule, meaning that all decisions of the appellate body are supposed to be adopted, shall be adopted, is the words in the text, unless 
there is a consensus not to adopt them. And because the side that won the case is unlikely ever to join a consensus not to adopt the report in which they won, there's never been a reverse consensus not to adopt an appellate body report. So if the United States is right and can say that because the 90-day deadline was not met, it doesn't meet the requirements for a reverse consensus adoption, it means that one party could object and could block the adoption of any appellate body report that was not issued in 90 days. So as a legal matter and as a matter of the way in which the system is supposed to work, that's the most serious complaint. What had been done in the past was that the vast majority of the decisions were done in 90 days, and the rare few that could not be done in 90 days, an agreement was worked out with the parties where they would write a letter that says that they will deem the report, even though it's not done in 90 days, they will deem it to have been done in 90 days and therefore subject to this reverse consensus rule. And what's happened lately is the majority of the opinions have not been done in 90 days. And the process of getting these deeming letters, as they're called, has fallen by the wayside. My understanding is that the reason the appellate body stopped sending these letters, they stopped consulting with members, was out of a concern that if one of the members objected to them breaking the deadline, then that could somehow undermine the officialness of that final report. That is absolutely the concern, and it's the concern about how do we ever fix this 90-day problem. Because right now, the real problem is it's almost impossible to meet a 90-day deadline when you only have three members of the appellate body sitting and 11 appeals pending. There isn't any way to get those done in 90 days. And every listener should understand that the 90 days includes the time to translate an opinion from English into Spanish and French or any combination thereof, because the 90 days is to hear the appeal, to write the opinion, and to have it translated so that it's published by the 90th day in all three official languages of the WTO. So meeting that 90-day deadline with only three members of the appellate body is becoming a virtual impossibility. So the concern then is what do we do about it? And you're exactly right. The concern, I think, is what happens if the appellate body goes out and says, we're not going to be able to complete this appeal in 90 days. Please agree to a revised time schedule. Please send us this deeming letter. And one of the parties says no. Then what? That's the real concern is is then that entire appeal process tainted from the very beginning if it cannot be subject to this reverse consensus rule by which the final report would be adopted. The EU has published some proposals to try to address these procedural concerns at least. So maybe the deadline would not include time to do this translation or the rules could include an explicit obligation to consult with members. They also proposed increasing the number of appellate body members and also the staff in the appellate body secretariat to help out on these particular cases. These procedural problems seem tricky, but ultimately fixable. I would agree with that. I think these are relatively easy fixes if people want to fix them. The Americans might argue, though, that you don't actually need any of these procedural fixes, that if the appellate body just stuck to what they were supposed to be doing, not opining on all these extra things, they could actually get their work done in 90 days. Here, if I had to caricature the U.S. position, it would be that The appellate body gets these panel reports on these disputes from that that first stage, and then it, it goes mega academic, and it starts offering opinions on all sorts of issues that haven't been raised by the parties, but by doing so, it sets precedent in future decisions. And where the rules are vague, 
Instead of standing back and saying, well, that wasn't in the contract, so we're not going to make a ruling, they jump in and they make all these interpretations. And then the U.S. finds itself faced with a bunch of academic lawyers telling it what it signed up to. This gets to the issue of what the Americans are complaining about here called judicial overreach. And to some extent, this is always in the eyes of the beholder. If you win one of these cases, the reaction is, yay, great ruling. But if you lose, it's always tempting to try to make the argument that the judges are reading into the agreement something that's just not there. And in some cases, there isn't something there. The text of the original agreement might have been left intentionally vague just so that the negotiators could actually get an agreement. But then that leaves the WTO panels and the appellate body with the dangerous position of having to make decisions. I think the heart of the United States' complaint is that the appellate body, as opposed to the panels, is the one that is doing overreaching, and it's overreaching in the U.S.'s view in a number of ways. First of all, it's examining things that the panel decided that were considered matters of fact. And in theory, the appellate body is only supposed to be looking at questions of law. And you see this very clearly, for example, in the United States' concern that what is municipal law, domestic law in another country, is a factual finding by the panel, and yet the appellate body has been reviewing it. Among the other things that the United States is complaining about is the appellate body is doing too much to second-guess the panel's findings of fact, that the appellate body is going too far in opining on issues that are not directly relevant to resolving the appeal, and therefore is adding a lot more just text and findings and language that may or may not be significant in a given case, but then comes back in the next case where the appellate body now says, oh, well, we've already decided that in a previous case, even though it wasn't the central issue in the prior case. So the United States' basic concern is they would like the appellate body to be more deferential to decisions of the panel, and in the trade remedy context, to be more deferential to the investigating authorities in each country that have carried out these anti-dumping and countervailing duty and safeguards investigations. So give them a little more benefit of the doubt with respect to trade remedies. And then again, be very careful to understand what are the central issues to resolving the dispute. Decide those issues and those issues alone. There's also this American accusation that the appellate body publishes these very long reports detailing their findings, and that by doing so, they're effectively setting legal precedent when they don't actually have to. It's true that the reports had become very long, and it's also true that recently they've become a bit shorter. And to be fair to the appellate body, in part the issue is that when governments file these disputes, legally speaking, they tend to throw the kitchen sink at them. They come up with every single legal argument that they can think of as to why they're in the right. And then the appellate body says, well, we have to address all of these arguments. Everyone deserves their day in court. The US might say, no, you should only address the arguments necessary to solve a case. But then you can see how that might be pretty subjective. And if you were the party that had some of its arguments skipped out and you lost, you might be really angry. One of the proposed solutions is that the members and their lawyers display a bit more restraint when submitting their arguments. Maybe to preserve the system, they need to recognize that there are limited resources in the appellate body. And if you strain them, then things are going to break. But enforcing a rule like that is certainly going to be tricky. Obviously, if this was all philosophical or theoretical, then it wouldn't matter and the US wouldn't really care that much. They care, though, because they think the appellate body has gotten some really big decisions wrong. 
when the appellate body ruled that the safeguard tariffs that President Bush put on steel back in 2002, when they ruled that those broke the rules, the Americans really didn't like that. And when the appellate body ruled that state-owned enterprises in China couldn't be treated as a quote-unquote public body, a giver of subsidies in these anti-subsidy cases, the Americans didn't really like that either. On some of these cases, the U.S. is pretty isolated and thinking that it's in the right. On others, actually, there's a fair amount of support. So on public bodies, I think the EU, Japan, for example, would, would have a lot of sympathy for the U.S. position. So these are all the, the complaints. And at no point has the U.S. laid out clearly what it wants, what would be enough to make it stop blocking the appointment of the appellate body judges, what would be good enough to make it want to keep this institution of binding dispute settlement. The concern in Geneva now is that the United States does not want to fix this process. Yeah. And therefore, nothing that is being proposed and nothing that is being discussed will ever be viewed as acceptable to the United States because fundamentally, the USTR Bob Lighthizer would like to go back to the system that existed under the old General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade before the WTO came into existence because that GATT system had two very important distinctions from the WTO. First, that GATT members could block even the creation of a panel. So the perception is if this issue is one that we don't even want to talk about, we'll block a panel even being formed in the first instance. And more importantly, that at the end of the process, if you didn't like the outcome, you could block the adoption of the panel report so that it never really saw the light of day. And the concern, I think, by many is that that's the system that Bob Lighthizer really wants. So that if the United States, for example, doesn't want any discussion of national security tariffs, it blocks even the creation of a panel. And if it loses on any of these challenges, for example, the 301 duties against China, where the United States has clearly violated the WTO rules, if that case goes to a panel and the panel decides that China is correct, that the tariffs are a violation, that the United States would block the adoption of that panel report. And that's among the really major concerns is that we may be at an absolute impasse because the United States does not want to fix the system, that what they really want is to get rid of the binding dispute settlement mechanism and go back to a more power-based way of resolving trade disputes. There are WTO members trying to think of fixes. There was a meeting of ministers in Ottawa on October 24th to the 25th. They're going to meet again in January. The EU and the Japanese are in trilateral discussions with the US talking about this. I suspect it's part of the EU-China dialogue. But if it turns out that the US just doesn't want to be part of the system, then it might be that the only way to keep binding dispute settlement is to construct some sort of alternative system without the US. Although it's, it's very unclear to me how you could do that in practice. To me, the only way of fixing this is as part of some bigger package. I find it highly unlikely that the U.S. is going to agree to some sort of sequential deal where first they agree to unblock the appointment of new appellate body members and then just trust that their other concerns about procedural issues, judicial overreach, and all of that just sorts itself out. They're going to want to bundle all of those things together as well as all of the other problems that they have with the WTO on the rules, dealing with the concerns with China, all of that is part of one really big set of issues. There's a parallel in the tactics that the Trump administration has been using on other issues. You threaten tariffs 
and then you you get the deal in the end. But there's always this uncertainty about whether they actually just want the tariffs. And here, there's a real uncertainty. Do they do they want to hold the appellate body system hostage to get this bigger fix to the system, or actually would they be kind of fine if there just wasn't an appellate body, there wasn't a binding dispute settlement system? That uncertainty, I'm sure, is something that they're using as leverage. But if it all fails, then we may only have the appellate body until December of 2019. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to former WTO appellate body member Jennifer Hillman, now of Georgetown Law School, for joining us today. And also thank you to CSIS for making available the audio of their event in October 2018 with the U.S. Ambassador to the WTO, Dennis Shea, and their September 2017 event with USTR Robert Lighthizer. And lots and lots of thanks to our many lawyer friends for explaining these Latin phrases like obiter dicta, stare decisis, and even hermeneutics. I learned about that one this week, as well as telling us what to read. In particular, I want to thank Mark Wu of Harvard, Rachel Brewster at Duke, Jeff Dunoff at Temple, Petros Mavroidis at Columbia, Rob House at NYU, Robert McDougall and Paul Bluestein at CG in Canada, Alan Sykes at Stanford, Tatiana Payasova at Van Bale and Bellis, and of course, Gary Huffbauer and Jeff Schott, my colleagues here at the Peterson Institute. We'll tweet out some of their research on these really big legal questions. Thanks also to Colin Warren. He not only takes care of our podcast audio, he is also the Trade Talks appellate body. He rules on the big Keynes versus Bound fights over Chad's continuing attempts to insert phrases like obiter dicta into the podcast. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade, underscore, underscore, talks. Because just one explanation of judicial overreach wasn't enough. Here is Jennifer, explaining an example of overreach as applied to the case of zeroing. I won't explain, because I think your listeners may know about it, the practice of zeroing, but it's a way in which anti-dumping duties are calculated. In the first case that came about where this practice of zeroing was being questioned, what the appellate body was being asked to interpret was the phrase, all comparable export transactions. And in that case, the European Union said that the real emphasis should be on that word comparable and that you cannot compare, in this instance, the case involved bed linens, you cannot compare, for example, a king comforter to a little tiny twin bedsheet. And so they ran a number of calculations where they did not directly compare those and then used this practice of zeroing when they added it all up. The appellate body came along and said, no, the emphasis should be on the word all, all comparable export transactions. And if you engage in this behavior of zeroing, you're not looking at all comparable export transactions. So the issue then is, okay, is that a matter of interpreting text or is that a matter of overreaching if at the end of the day what you say is you may not zero? Then to go on, in the next case that came up involving zeroing, there was a comparison being made on a different basis between a transaction to a transaction methodology in which those words, all comparable export transactions, were not in the text. And in that decision, the appellate body said, well, we can't have a different result where you get a wildly different margin if you do the comparison that involves all comparable export transactions without zeroing, you get one margin. And if you instead do this transaction to transaction margin and get a very different result. So we're going to assume, in other words, read in this notion that you cannot zero 
in these transaction-to-transaction comparisons, even though the text did not include all comparable export transactions. So for the United States, that is the ultimate example of judicial overreach, where you're making a decision based on a prior decision involving a different set of text, and you're making a decision based on, if you will, a policy analysis, that what you don't want is a distinction in policy. So for the United States, that is absolutely judicial overreach, whereas perhaps for the European Union, or others, it is an interpretation of the text and an application of that text in a different context. That gets to the heart of exactly what this debate is about. 